Our two readings this evening are both from 2 Thessalonians, so I should be reading the reading in two parts, and I'm commencing at 2 Thessalonians 2, uh, verse 13. The section is entitled, Stand Firm. But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, loved by the Lord, because God chose you as firstfruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel, that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honoured, just as it was with you. And pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil people. For not everyone has faith, but the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord that you are of the Lord you are doing and will continue to do the things we command. May the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. We're going to continue our reading uh, from 2 Thessalonians, um, commencing at chapter 3, verse 6, and reading through to the end at verse 18. And the section begins warning against idleness. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without praying for it. On the contrary, We worked night and day, labouring and toiling so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model to you to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive. They are not busy. They are busy bodies. Some people we command and urge to the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat. And as for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. Take special note of anyone who does not obey our instruction in this letter. Do not associate with them in order that they may feel ashamed. Yet do not regard them as an enemy, but warn them as you would a fellow believer. And final greetings. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace to all, at all times and in every way. The Lord be with all of you. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand, which is the distinguishing mark in all my letters. This is how I write. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
be with you all. Those of you who've read Jane Austen's books will know that she didn't have a very high opinion of ministers in the church. Um, I'd forgotten just how acerbic her character, Miss Crawford, is in Mansfield Park about clergymen. When Edmund Bertram, who intends to go into the church, says that those who, who do so must be sincere because they're not tempted by the ideas of heroism or danger that attract people to become soldiers or sailors, this is her reply. Oh, no doubt he is very sincere in preferring an income ready-made to the trouble of working for one and has the best intentions of doing nothing at all the rest of his days but eat, drink and grow fat. It is indolence, Mr Bertram indeed, indolence and love of ease, a want of all laudable ambition, of taste for good company or of inclination to take the trouble of being agreeable which make men clergymen. A clergyman has nothing to do but be slovenly and selfish. Read the newspaper, watch the weather and quarrel with his wife. His curate does all the work and the business of his own life is to dine. Well, there you go. (laughs) Now we have a second minister. I know how I can spend my time. And I'm grateful to you, Andy, this morning for pointing out that I was earning my money this week because I was baptising and preaching and doing communion as well. Just to clarify, I do do stuff outside of Sunday services also. But, but Paul, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, is very clear that hard work is a good thing. He says, we work day and night when we were with you to set you a good example about how you ought to live. The Bible has a good track record of, of giving hard time to people who are lazy, going right back to the book of Proverbs, where it talks about the sluggard who goes hungry because he buries his hand in his dish and is too lazy to lift it out and put the food in his own mouth. Hard work is a good thing and is to be commended to people who follow God. In the early years of the 20th century, a German sociologist called Max Weber published a work entitled The Protestant Work Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism. It was to become a classic study. He looked at the European countries of the time and wondered why the centres of economic productivity were Protestant. Places like England and Scotland and Holland and Germany, as opposed to more Catholic countries like France and Spain and Italy. And he put the responsibility for that on John Calvin, one of the founding fathers of Protestantism. Calvin had a strong view of predestination. Whether you were elect or not was a matter of God's sovereign choice made before you were born. There was nothing whatsoever to alter the outcome of his sovereign election. So where do you get any sense of assurance, if you're a Christian, that you are going to go to heaven when you die? Well, all that you can do is lead the kind of life that someone who has been chosen by God for salvation ought to lead. So laziness, then, is out of the question. You had to work hard, because that was what was expected of someone who was a committed Christian. And if you worked hard, and you earned a bit of money, squandering that on frivolous luxuries was also out of the question. If you were serious about eternal life, you wouldn't indulge any earthly desires or treat yourself to this worldly pleasures. So as you begin to earn money, what do you do with it? because it's harder for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. You could give it away, but that might encourage other people to be lazy, and you don't want to do that. 
Um, so the only thing you can do, actually, is invest it back in the business again and plow it back in, into the work or, or the business that you're running. And so inevitably, the argument was, thrifty, hard-working Protestants began to prosper as a result of their Christian faith. It's been a theory that's been around for over 100 years, and it, it uh, fell to a couple of Dutch scholars recently to put Weber's theory to the test. The, the idea was that if there is such a thing as the Protestant work ethic, then in the present economic climate, where unemployment is fairly prevalent, you might expect Protestants to cope less well with forced unemployment and inactivity than their Catholic counterparts who are more happy to have their siestas during the day. And that actually is precisely what they found. While unemployment reduces happiness and well-being regardless of what denomination you belong to, it is 40% worse for Protestants. They said they interviewed 150,000 people in 82 countries and found that the negative effect of unemployment on self-reporting happiness was twice as strong for Protestants compared with non-Protestants. Their verdict is that the Protestant work ethic is still alive and kicking today. And that would have gladdened the heart of someone like the 19th century surgeon John Abernethy, who when being asked by an indolent and luxurious citizen what was the cure for gout, his reply was, live on sixpence a day and earn it. There was someone who lived and breathed the spirit of capitalism and the good Protestant work ethic. And if you were to look for a scriptural basis for that whole mindset, you need look no further than these verses in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and chapter 3. Because at this point we leave behind all the cryptic stuff earlier in the letter about what has to happen on the world stage before the return of Christ. And we become brutally practical. If a man will not work, let him not eat, is the most pithy summary of the chapter as a whole. But the whole thing is grounded in a clear sense of predestination. God used Paul's proclamation of the gospel to call the Thessalonians to share in the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the letter expresses confidence that God had chosen them to be saved through their belief in the truth and the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. God's election was apparent in the fact that they'd responded to the good news of Jesus with faith and they were being made holy. And as people who have believed, as people who have been made holy by the Holy Spirit, Paul expects them then to work jolly hard. Remember what it was like when I was among you, he says, how we worked day and night setting you a good example. There were lots of religious charlatans around in the world at the time, lots of people who kind of made a living out of peddling religious ideas, and, and Paul wanted to make it clear he didn't belong in that kind of bracket. He was very conscious that he was open to accusation about making a living out of the gospel. And so time and again to the Thessalonians, he says, look, we worked really hard when we were with you. Remember that, and make sure you follow that example in your own lives as well. All that stuff about labouring and toiling night and day so that you are not indebted to anyone. If that doesn't breathe the spirit of capitalism and the virtues of hard work, I do not know what does. So keen is Paul on the idea that he tells them to keep an eye open for anyone who's slacking, 
who's not pulling their weight, who's being idle or disruptive. I love that translation in, in the translation you read, Graham. Uh, have nothing to do with them, he says, so that they might be shamed into falling into line with everybody else. The word used for being lazy and idle here literally means being disorderly. It means being disruptive. Although there weren't production lines in Paul's day, you can see the image of the production line, everybody doing their bit. And in the middle, there are people who are larking around and messing around and not paying attention. And the whole thing fails because they are not keeping in line. They're not playing their part. They're not keeping order with everybody else. And it destroys what everybody else is trying to do. That is precisely the point that Paul is trying to make. Everybody has to pull together on this. And if you're being lazy, you're not pulling your weight and you're messing around, then that affects everybody else as well. Don't let that happen in the church, he says. Yet he doesn't value business purely for its own sake. There's no point just kind of rushing around and filling your day with activity. It has to be productive. It has to achieve something. It has to be worthwhile. In this context, it has to be about actually bringing a bit of money in. The problem, the issue he has with people who are not working hard is not that they're lazing in the sun all day, it's rather that they are using their time to make mischief. He would have approved of the saying, an idle brain is the devil's workshop. There were some people who were busybodies in the sense they were minding everybody else's business but their own. They were sorting everybody else's life out, but their own. They were busy interfering and meddling and kind of getting to grips and generally putting themselves around a lot where their own lives left so much to be desired. Such people, he says, are told to get on with working quietly so that they can eat their own bread. Where there is activity, Paul wants it to be useful. If it's not useful, it's far better just to be still and quiet and mind your own business, he says. Why does he end this letter on such a note? We can only speculate. One possible scenario is that there were people in the church who were so taken up with the idea that Christ could return at any moment, they just downed tools and waited for it to happen. And, uh, you know, in times past in history, when there's the expectation that, that the Lord is going to come back on this particular date, then people have sold their possessions and given away their fields and quit their jobs and waited for it and been in real financial trouble when the, the due date has been and gone and they, they, they've sold everything they had and given it away. They've got nothing left. People have been irresponsible in terms of their attitude towards life in the prospect of Christ's return. In my first church, there were young people who said, oh, I don't need to bother with studying. Jesus is coming back soon. Well, you know, 20 years down the line, they might be regretting that decision. It's not an excuse for irresponsibility. Jesus is coming back and everything that we know about the world is not going to be here anymore. We are called, yes, to live in readiness for his return. We are also called to make the most of the resources and the life that he's given to us. Other people suppose it's nothing to do with the return of Jesus. It's just people in the church taking advantage of the church's commitment to look after the poor. And they were quite happily relying on charity when they could have been gainfully employed. There have always been people like that around. They haven't kind of suddenly sprung into existence as a result of the social security system in Britain in the past 70 years. There have always been people who are quite happy to get other people to do the work for them if they're willing to do that. And there were people in the church at the time who were willing to say, well, this is great. If I team up with these people here, they're going to take care of me and I don't need to bother. And Paul says, watch out for people who are abusing the system. They need to get on and be responsible for their own lives. If they can be gainfully employed, they should be gainfully employed. 
And as our Dutch scholars found out when they assessed the, the Protestant work ethic, for people who want to be gainfully employed and can't be, that causes a real issue, actually. Because we, we have it ingrained in our minds that you know, good Christians are productive Christians and therefore should be working hard. And so for people who are unemployed and looking for work and not finding work, that creates sometimes a real crisis of faith for them. Other people who can't work because of disability or illness in some kind of way also struggle with a passage like this. And it's important that you know, support is given to people who genuinely cannot work or find it difficult to work rather than kind of pointing the finger because the church is not in the business of pointing the finger. The church is in the business of extending grace and helping people whatever their situation or condition. Jack struck the note at the beginning of the service. You know, Jesus accepts us as we are. And that is precisely the true and precisely the case. Some retired people struggle with this whole idea as well because it's so easy. You get used to working hard and being productive and doing stuff and being active. When you can't be like that anymore, people sometimes struggle because the reason for for doing everything is gone. And sometimes our whole sense of identity and self-worth and value rests not in the grace of Christ and, and the fact that we are loved and accepted sinners as we are by Jesus. It's in the, we're so busy, we're doing so much, we're achieving so much, we're so active. And when we can't be active anymore, we have a crisis of identity, a crisis of faith. It's important that we don't put the cart before the horse. The basis for all that we do as Christians has to be the grace and the love and the acceptance of Christ. We are saved not by how busy we are, not by how much we achieve, not by the kind of lives that we lead. We are saved solely and exclusively by the grace of God. And it's faith that saves us, whether we have a job or not, whether we can be busy or not, whether we are self-sufficient or not, whether we are healthy or not. We are saved by grace. That should be outworked in terms of how we live our lives. But the basis for our identity and our salvation is nothing more and nothing less than the grace of God which we receive by faith. Yet if we are Christians, the time that we have at our disposal, however long that is, should be regarded as a resource to be used productively in God's service. Either by working and producing an income or by using the time that we have to serve God in some way or capacity. Work was part of God's mandate to Adam as he put him in the Garden of Eden. He was put there to work it and to take care of it. And there was so much work, in fact, that for better or worse, he needed Eve to come and give him a hand. Paradise was not all about sipping ice drinks on sun loungers in the shade by the pool. It was about hard work that would have brought with it a real sense of achievement. That is part of the way in which God wired us, actually to benefit from working and producing and gaining satisfaction from our toil. Sue will tell you that I get grumpy if I've not done something useful in the course of a day off, even if gardening comes way, way down the list of priorities. There is something in us that says, I need to actually achieve something and do something. And if we just spend our time all the time in idleness, it's great for a while, but it doesn't do us good necessarily in the long term. I think God did wire us in such a way that we do need to be productive in the long term in order to be satisfied. So 2 Thessalonians argues quite clearly that God has no truck with indolence. And although we are saved by grace alone, that doesn't mean that any of us can simply put our feet up and let others take the strain on our behalf. What God calls us to be 
and what Christ enables us to be and what Paul looks for is for us to be people who take responsibility for how we live. We are called to be responsible for what we do with our lives and how we use our time. Being responsible entails being in control of your own behaviour. If there are important tasks, then you prove trustworthy in fulfilling them. If there is a job to be done, you finish your work on time. If you're working as a team, you play your part and enable others to work effectively. All that is bound up in the idea of being responsible. And that is what Paul is aiming for in this closing passage in the letter. So do not grow weary in doing good. Whatever we do, we're called to do it responsibly and to the best of our ability in the service of Christ, even if... You are a minister of religion as I am. Our lives have been redeemed at immeasurable cost. What has been bought at such great cost should not be squandered and frittered away. It has been said, your life is God's gift to you. What you do with it is your gift back to God. This week... What kind of gift will you present to the Lord in terms of how you will spend your time and the quality of the work you will do in his service? Let's pray. Lord, help us to get the balance right in our lives. to use our time wisely and well. Some of us work too hard and we need to have the discipline of creating time to relax and rest and enjoy ourselves. Help us to do that. Some of us struggle with with motivation Give us discipline. Make us more responsible. Help us to play our part in the tasks that you set before us. And some of us, Lord, would love to be more active, but we can't be because of health or age or enforced unemployment. Help us to know that we are held in your grace. Enable us to find ways of of being productive and finding fulfilment in the time that we have on our hands that we'd rather not have. Lord, whatever our situation, we offer our lives to you in worship. We present our bodies to you as living sacrifices which you have made holy and acceptable. Receive the offering of our time our gifts, our bodies, our future. And as you gave your life for us, Lord, help us to live our lives for you. In Jesus' name. Amen.